Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry, as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. And joining me today is the man who played Alan Davenport in Rodrigo Cortez's 2010 film Buried, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? Thank you very much. It's a role that uh, I needed a cell phone for. Well, you know, so people who don't know what Buried is, this is a film that premiered, I think, at the Sundance Film Festival, which I was at, and I got to see the film. And it stars Ryan Reynolds. He plays a guy in a coffin, and the entire movie takes place inside the coffin. So it's very uh, sort of a, an exercise in filmmaking that I think is pretty impressive. And uh, Ryan Reynolds happens to have a cell phone conveniently, uh, and uh, he actually gets a few calls, calls a couple of people, and one of them is Stephen Tobolowsky. And when I heard Stephen's voice, I freaked out in the theater. Yeah, and you know, we should all really check out what his calling plan was, because I have trouble when I'm in Burbank actually getting, uh, getting a call through. But he was able to get the call through uh, in Iraq in a coffin. Well, I made the remark that uh, we, I have AT&T, I'm on the iPhone, and... Uh, he, Ryan Reynolds in a coffin underground got better reception than many of us did while we were at Sundance. So it was quite it sad. Is. Quite yes. sad. It's, uh, it's, it's what you call the MacGuffin. It is the reason. It is, you know, it is the kind of stretching of the uh, credulity that allows you to make the leap into the movie. Well, speaking of stretching credulity, Stephen, you know, this week, <laughs> uh, this week in the Northeast, we were forecast to have over a foot of snow in the Boston area. And, uh, you know, everyone was buying up stuff, going to the grocery store, buying ham, milk, and eggs like it was, you know, it's Armageddon. I love and, it. Uh, and, of course, what ended up happening is uh, there literally no exaggeration outside of my front door, uh, half an inch of snow is all that fell. I, I, I got an email from uh, some of my uh, – people who listen to the podcast that my home in Dallas got like nine inches of snow. There you go. So this, was, this was every schoolboy's wish, except I'm only getting it like 40 some odd years too late. And here in LA right now, uh, we have absolutely gorgeous sunny weather. It just shows you that, you know, nothing is exactly quite as it seems. Nothing is exactly quite as you could predict. I mean, no one can predict a lot of things, and, and in fact, it leads into a little bit what my story is today, which I'd like to call the uncertainty principle. It, it goes back to episode 15, The Politics of Romance, and we pick up the story again there. And we should say also, by the way, that if you haven't heard episode 15, you should go back and, and listen to that episode before you listen to this one, right? Yes, and episode 10 and 11 also, because these are all now a little sequential. Right, so for maximum enjoyment, go back to those episodes before you listen to this <laughs> yes. one. Yes, yes. Um, but I'm thinking back to that time. Uh, Beth's triumph with the Am I Blue happened in May, near the end of that school year, and it took about two weeks for the rush of excitement to turn into, so now what are you going to do with the rest of your life? It was indulgent enough to claim to be an acting major in college, but to be a writing major made about as much sense as studying to become a rodeo clown. As college students, we knew firsthand that nobody read books anymore, so what's the point? And as fine arts majors, 
graduation time is usually the time to turn to plan B, which is usually to get a real job and desperation. Beth's friend and director Jill Peters got her an interview at Pepe Gonzalez's Mexican restaurant to be a waitress. Now, the advantage that Pepe Gonzalez had over its rival Pedro's was that they didn't serve dog food in the enchiladas. But the disadvantage was that it wasn't a buffet. So the waitresses had to carry those huge, gigantic trays with the huge plates of refried beans and chips and mile-high margaritas. The fall from your dream to reality is especially hard when you've seen that you could fly. I appeared to be doing better career-wise than Beth, and I have to underline the word appeared. I was starring now as Jesus in a very successful production of Godspell, and teenage girls would surround me at laundromats and ask me for my autograph and wondered what it was like to really perform miracles. And I was thinking that the only miracle I really needed was to actually get paid. Because even though Godspell was a hit, the theater had a very strict policy of asking the actors to give their salaries back to the front office or they didn't get cast in the next show. (laughs) Yeah, that's something else you young actors need to learn. Yeah. So the only real income I was making at this time was reading a dirty book to an 80-year-old woman, not much of a future there, and doing comedy sketches for producers who paid me in Chinese food. So the only way I was upwardly mobile was when I climbed the stairs. Bernard Hopgood, a.k.a. Hobb, the head of SMU's theater department, who had become a central character in my life during my difficulties with Joan Potter, suddenly announced he was leaving SMU. And I mean, he was the icon there. But he was starting a brand new master's program at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. And he asked me if Beth and I wanted to come with him and enroll as students, kind of like test pilots. And I told him I had barely survived my undergraduate career. Beth and I were planning on going to New York, being babes on Broadway, the idea of doing more class scenes and doing more essays on 18th century drama with potential run-ins with difficult teachers made me a little ill. Hobb laughed and said, well, this time we would be the teachers. Beth and I would be paid to teach beginning acting and voice. And the university would pay all of our tuition. I told him, thanks, but no thanks. But I had had enough of school for one lifetime. Back at the apartment, Beth was trying on her Mexican waitress outfit. It was one of those green and red and white striped skirt vest combos with the white scoop neck blouse with the big puffy sleeves. It was ghastly. Worse, it was Mexican restaurant ghastly. She had trained for two hours, and tomorrow was her first day. She looked at me with the casual despair you usually only see in a Diane Arbus photograph. I told her she looked cute, and she almost burst into tears, and she murmured that she looked like a vomitorium. The next day, Saturday, was D-Day. Beth started work at 11 a.m. I had two shows. My matinee was at 2 p.m., and the butterflies I was feeling in my stomach weren't related to today's performance of Godspell. But how would Beth fare at handling the weekend lunch shift at Pepe Gonzalez's? When she left, I gave her a little kiss, and I headed out for the theater. And as I was putting on my Jesus costume, which, by the way, was a pair of denim overalls, I looked over at the clock. It was noon. Okay, 
Beth was working. I decided she would be fine. She is smart. She is resourceful. I was wrong. An hour later, Beth came running through the back door of the theater. She was crying so hard her body was shaking. She ran into my arms, and I held her, and we slid down the wall onto the floor backstage, and I rocked her behind the curtain until she could talk. And she said, it was horrible, horrible. The people were mean. I can't take it. I can't take it anymore. And I shushed her. I said, there now, there. It'll be okay. Just catch your breath. And I could hear the audience start to enter the theater on the other side of the curtain. And I said, you just hang out right here and you'll get a second wind and things will go better tonight. And she goes, tonight? Tonight? Are you out of your mind? I quit. I was fired. I dropped a tray. I can't do this. And she burst into tears again. I'm never going back. Never, 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 never going back. I said, okay, okay. You don't have to go back. And we sat there rocking for a few minutes, and I heard the stage manager call out, 15 minutes on the backstage PA, and the band started tuning up. I said, it'll be all right. Beth sniffled and looked at me, and then as if the pit of hell opened up in front of her, in a very small, plaintive voice, she looked at me and she asked, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I scanned my universe of no options and said, what do you think about going to Illinois? in Champaign-Urbana in August, right before the school year started to find a place for Beth and I to stay. On our budget, there weren't a lot of options. I ended up renting a couple of rooms in a pre-Civil War house that was walking distance from the drama school. Now, that was good. And the rent would only be $150 a month. I repeat... The rent was only $150 a month. Now, that was great. Okay, the only problem was that the two rooms weren't connected. In fact, they weren't even adjacent, but they were both on the second floor. We had a living room and kitchen on one side of a public hallway and a bedroom and a bathroom a few paces down on the other side of the hallway. The net result is that you were always crossing and recrossing the hallway, and this is how I ended up meeting Laura. Laura lived in the apartment at the very end of the second floor, and she was on her way out, and she ran into me crossing in my bathrobe. And she laughed and said, oh, I guess they finally unloaded the split apartment. And I grinned like the chump I apparently was and said, yeah, I guess they did. She said, well, they offered to me. But then she said that she thought it was unsafe. She said, you could be sound asleep in your bedroom while you were being <laughs> robbed in your living room. 
or you could have people over for dinner in your living room while you were being raped in your bedroom. No one would ever know. And I said I hadn't thought of that, but that was a definite downside. She told me she was a foreign language major specializing in Asiatic languages, and she had mastered seven so far. And I was duly impressed to mention that Beth and I were new to the university and would be starting the new master's program in acting. And she found that all very exciting, and she invited Beth and I over for dinner when Beth came into town. I accepted, and I was feeling pretty good that I was already on the road of developing that all-important social network. When Beth got into town, I showed her our new digs. She liked the look of the old house, but was perturbed about the split arrangement of the rooms. She said I could be in the living room reading and would never know that someone was attacking her in the bedroom. I nodded in recognition of my error. I said, look, we're just going to have to lock the doors. So we unpacked and we set off to explore our new world. We walked across campus. Now, it, it had two defining elements. One, the University of Illinois was huge. Whereas SMU only had around 5,000 students at this time, the University of Illinois had 35,000. The second thing I noticed was that the entire campus smelled like doo-doo. As Beth and I walked in, taking in the enormity of the place, she looked at me and squinched up her face and said, this place stinks. I said, I know, I know. And we both stopped and looked at the bottom of our shoes. Nothing. We walked over to the brand new Kranitz Center of the Arts where we would be teaching and hopefully acting in place. And it was amazing. Beautiful, huge, new theaters, outdoor amphitheater, dance studios. It was a palace. And we met John Ahart, who was the tall, sweet, affable head of the directing curriculum. He shook my hand vigorously and said, so here are Hobbes' chosen ones. Nice to meet you two. I think you'll be happy here because we're certainly very happy to have you. I nodded and said, yes, it's all a little overwhelming. John laughed and said, the new building? or the smell. And I said, well, and John said, yeah, at this time of the year, the university smells like shit. Actually, it's pretty interesting. It's the trees. You see, the entire campus was planted with ginkgo trees, and they're prehistoric. They predate the evolution of using bees to pollinate. They use flies. So the smell is actually an ingenious biological mechanism of attraction. Amazing, huh? I said, yeah, in an odd way, it's proof that there's a God. So how long does this smell last? He said, six weeks. I go, well, they sure don't mention this in the brochure. We ran into Hob walking briskly down the hallway with his beret at a fetching angle, smoking his pipe, and he threw up his arms and ran over to us, gave us a big hug. He asked if we were getting settled in, and I started to go into enormous detail about our split-room apartment, and he nodded, having not heard a single word I had said. And then he whispered to me very secretively that as graduate student teachers, we were invited to a special party that evening for the faculty. That evening, we followed Hobbes' directions to a building on the very edge of the campus, and the party was held in what looked like some kind of basement. A Peter Frampton album was playing in the background. There was a table with pretzels and cheese sticks and a salami log. The only thing that kept me from thinking I was in sixth grade was that there was a wash basin filled with beer. Not knowing anyone, I looked for a safe place to gravitate. 
I avoided all of the bearded men. I avoided all of the men wearing ties and corduroy jackets. And then I saw this young man in his early 30s standing alone, looking around uncomfortably. He was wearing faded blue jeans and drinking a Coors, and I thought, oh yeah, there's my man. I walked over and introduced myself and Beth. I told him we were just starting the master's program. We were teaching beginning acting. I asked him what he taught. He said his specialty was physics and math. And I was very impressed. I told him I liked science a lot, and he smiled. And I asked him if there was a facet that interested him in particular, and he said yes, that actually he had just won the Nobel Prize. Pause. I almost had a seizure. I, I, I said, really? He nodded and sipped his Coors beer. He grinned shyly and said, yeah, it was a surprise, but it's really pretty cool. I said, yeah, it's kind of sort of the definition of cool. I guess you're done padding your resume. If I may ask, what did you win for? And he said, I won for developing a mathematical theorem proving the uncertainty principle. I smiled sheepishly and explained I didn't know what that was. He said, the uncertainty principle states that nothing can really be known. I came up with a constant to prove that the closer you get to the truth the more incorrect your findings will be. And when you're actually standing right on top of the truth itself, the fact that you're standing there will make your observations 100% wrong. I was speechless. In that one moment, he made me feel both foolish for having read Voltaire and good about watching cartoons. He said he started the theorem from a study of subatomic particles, and the equipment that's used to study mesons and pi mesons affected their behavior. From there, he was able to arrive at a universal constant that the truth is proportionally hidden from close observation, which I guess is why people on camera have difficulty acting normal. See, I knew acting was hard. I just needed a physicist to explain why. I mentioned that coming up with a proof that nothing could be known at a university was pretty bold, kind of like biting the hand that feeds you. I guess that's why we'll always have art to understand truth from a safe distance. After the party, Beth and I walked around the campus, and I had never experienced Indian summer before. The stars seemed to have a different sort of light. They seemed closer and clearer, and we arrived at the center of campus and came upon a bronze sculpture of various people and angels reaching forward to embrace us. I stopped to look at the inscription, and it said, to thy happy children of the future, those of the past send greetings. I smiled, and I looked into those unseeing bronze faces and the outstretched arms, and I knew somehow I was in the right place, unified not by anyone who had any answers, but by generations of others who stood right where I was with nothing but questions. And then I had a pang of fear, thinking about how far away Beth and I were from where we thought we would be in our lives, and then it hit me. This was the uncertainty principle. And maybe, just maybe, distance was a friend to truth. Beth looked at me and said she really liked the statue because this is how angels really look. I asked her how did she know, and she said, because I see them in my dreams. I smiled again, and I thought of my friend at the party with his shy smile and Coors beer. Yeah, 
Maybe he was onto something. I'm riding a big blue boat And I never do dream I may fall But I will jump off and I'll smile back at you. The school year started. Beth and I were teaching. We were taking modern dance, acting, and a class in Shakespearean verse taught by Hobb. And I was amazed. All of this time, I had only known Hobb as a sort of academe to the third power, a man who called a spade a partially conical digging implement used primarily in recreational agriculture. So now I was seeing a totally different Hob, a great teacher who wore a beret. Acting-wise, I was going to be in Tom Stoppard's Jumpers playing an old man. Beth was going to be in Thornton Wilder's Skin of Our Teeth playing a child. So we were slowly creeping up on parts our own age. As a fitting climax to this whirlwind first week, we were going over to our neighbor Laura's apartment for dinner. She told us she was cooking Italian, and all we had to do was bring ourselves. I love that. Bring yourselves. I think more than flowers and more than children even, cooking seems to make a house come alive. I remember my grandfather's house always smelled of lima beans and vanilla cookies. And when mom was alive, our home in Dallas always held the traces of Betty Crocker cakes and pot roast. It was a very nice combination. When the cooking leaves, an emptiness takes its place that always seems to tell a sad story. As we walked up the spiral staircase of our new residence, Laura was in her kitchen and the tomato and the oregano and the garlic were working its way through every board and beam. She met us at the door and she looked quite put together in her powder blue sweater and her brown plaid skirt. Her apartment was big and airy, and it had these huge windows with the old, old glass facing the street, making the whole outside world seem like an Impressionist painting. We sat down and feasted on salad and spaghetti and sponge cake and wine, and as we munched on garlic bread, I told all the old stories about how Beth and I met and Van Cliburn and Joan Potter and Am I Blue. And when we were finishing our wine... Laura started looking at me across the table. Something in her look was odd, and it put me on edge. She said Beth and I were such a cute couple, and she poured herself another glass of wine. I cut off another huge piece of sponge cake and asked if she was seeing anyone. She said she had a boyfriend who was going to southern Illinois, but she didn't get to see him much. She couldn't visit him on the weekends because she had so much work to do for her language major, and for whatever reason, he couldn't get up to see her. At a certain point of mild intoxication, Beth and I called it a night. A pleasant time was had by all. And as Beth and I walked down the few feet of hallway back to our bedroom, I looked back, and Laura was looking at us through her front door. She stared at us for a moment and then disappeared inside her apartment, and I heard the door lock. 
Over the next week or two, Beth and I fell into the rabbit hole of study and teaching and working on our respective plays. It was an exhausting routine fueled only on pizza. One night, I had rehearsal at the Cranard Center, and Beth had the night off, and she was going to stay in the apartment and catch up on her Shakespearean verse homework. I remember thinking that night that my biggest problem was learning the five-page monologue that opened our play, Jumpers. Once again, I was wrong. About 10 p.m., Beth came running into the theater in a panic. Rehearsal stopped. I ran over to see what was up. I tried to calm her down. She said she couldn't stay in the apartment anymore. It was haunted. Okay. She said, no, listen to me. I was in bed reading, and I heard a scream. And I said, well, it was probably the television in someone else's apartment, or maybe it was noise coming from Laura's place. She said, no, no, it was in our bedroom. It was a ghost, and I'm not going back there alone. I rubbed my forehead. I was starting to get my Beth headache. This was the headache I always got when I was confronted with something so completely in Beth's reality that I would have to deal with. Like the time in upstate New York when she went running into the woods because she thought insects from Mars were trying to get into her brain. Or the time she scolded me for kicking mushrooms along the side of the road because I was destroying the houses where the fairies lived. It was a Beth headache. After rehearsal, I went back to the apartment. I looked through everything. No ghost. Big surprise. Now, during my play rehearsal, we had a run-in over my hair. The director wanted me to wear a gray wig. Now, wearing the wig they picked out for me, I looked like a gigantic granny clampet. I said, why couldn't I just do this au naturel? That way the audience isn't constantly confronted with the huge lie of my wig every time I open my mouth. And the director said, listen, I was playing an old philosopher with a young wife. It was intrinsic to the story that I'd be old. And I recognized that he had a point in theory. But in practicality, why pick out a play where you're going to have a 24-year-old play an 84-year-old? The answer is not to put the 24-year-old in a gray bun. Maybe it would be just as poignant if the philosopher were young, but more in love with ideas than his wife. Without a doubt, at some point, we were going to ruin this play. I suggested why not ruin it with bad acting instead of bad hair. I went home in a huff. I took a shower to cool off. Beth was still at her dress rehearsal, so I put on my jammies, settled in for one of my favorite guilty pleasure, watching reruns of Ironsides with Raymond Burr. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ironsides was not just a television show in Urbana. It was the centerpiece of popular culture. It was on three times a day. It was always different episodes, and Raymond Burr was always in a wheelchair, except for the flashback episode where he was standing and walking for about 60 seconds until he was shot. I was lying in bed drinking a rolling rock, thinking how brilliant Raymond Burr was for coming up with this idea where he didn't even have to stand up except when he was on break. And then it happened. I heard a shriek that made me choke on my beer. I sat up in terror. I heard it again, an eerie, high-pitched wail. Okay, I jump out of bed. I turn off the TV. This couldn't be happening. It was a ghost. My heart was pounding. The hair on the back of my neck was standing up. The only thing worse than a Beth headache was when Beth was right. Okay, it had to be the wind. That was it. The wind. Or a branch scraping on the roof. 
and there it was again, again, somewhere above me, walking above me, walking around the room. Now, I'm looking for the source. It sounded louder over by the closet. Closet door was closed, so I grabbed one of my fried boots to use as a weapon. I opened the door. Silence. I started looking through my clothes. Nothing. Then I heard the shriek again above me. I ran out of the closet, slammed the door, dashed across the hall over to the living room kitchen side of our abode and grabbed our flashlight. I ran back, pointed it up to the roof of the closet. Now, I'd never looked up there before. It was not solid. It was just slats of wood and everything was quiet. And then I heard the scream again and a hand slapping on the ceiling of the closet and I saw a finger. It was the ghost. And I ran out of the apartment in my pajamas downstairs, out into the street. I stood pacing there in the frosty air, wondering what I should do. Beth came home and saw me shivering in the street, and she asked me what was going on. I told her about the shriek and the hand, and she nodded. She said, it's probably a ghost from the Civil War. Someone murdered for money for trading in slaves will have to move. I realized Beth was probably right on this one, and I started coming up with a story to get out of our lease, when out of the corner of my eye, I saw movement up on the roof of the house, and we turned to see our ghost, or ghosts, actually. It was a mother raccoon and three babies waddling out of a hole in the roof, down the big tree along the side of the house, and then waddling away in single file. And Beth said, oh, so cute. We'll have to put bananas out for them during the winter. The next month, our plays opened up, and they were very successful. Beth was beautiful as the little girl, and I ended up compromising with the director over my hair. And instead of a wig, I let them spray me with gray streaks and tips. Yeah, it was also a horrible choice. But it only made me look like a bad high school actor instead of an old transvestite. After two weeks, I finished my run in jumpers and had gotten another leading role in a new play to close out the semester. And I was feeling the first real flush of success in Illinois. And I walked home after that final matinee, jumped in the shower to wash off all that old age makeup and remove the remains of the streaks and tips for the last time, when to my horror, a huge chunk of hair fell out of my head. I couldn't believe it. I rinsed the shampoo out, and another handful fell out, and then another, and then another. I lost my hair that afternoon in the shower. Not all of it like today, but enough to where I'd look like I was balding. From that day on, my chances of playing a young romantic lead were over. From that day on, Whenever a woman or a casting director met me, I always saw their eyes dart to my hairline. It was far more traumatic than I ever admitted to myself. All the Tabalowski men were bald, but all of the men in my mother's family kept their hair, and I always held out hope that I would favor her side of the family. But it was not to be. The closing day of Jumpers was the last day I looked like a young man. I'm always asked in interviews when I decided to be a character actor. It was decided that afternoon in the shower. It was around this time that we met Claudia Riley. 
Claudia was the only student in the Cranard playwriting curriculum, and she looked the part. She had sharply cut, short blonde hair with bangs, big intelligent eyes, and like Hob, she wore a beret. She wore black turtleneck sweaters and smoked cigarettes. She was funny and had the magnetic quality of appearing both jaded and innocent in the same instant. She had just written a new play and asked Beth and me to read some of the roles in it for its first public presentation. We were thrilled. There were about 40 people in attendance. All the actors sat in a semicircle at one end of the room, and Claudia made a short speech beforehand, and her cheeks and neck were flushed with excitement and probably terror. We commenced. The play was witty. It had interesting characters, but it didn't really pick you up and shake you by the neck. But believe me, I had been in a lot worse written plays by published authors before at SMU. In the end, the reading was great fun, and it was a huge success for Claudia and for the school for turning out a playwriting student who actually wrote a play. After some champagne with Claudia and her friends, Beth and I walked home in silence. There was a tension of something building up. It was another one of those moments I needed a defining soundtrack. When we got to the living room kitchen side of our abode, Beth walked around the room nervously. Then she turned to me and said, that was so brave of Claudia. I, being clueless, said, what was brave? She said, writing a play, being a woman and writing a play. And I said, well, I don't know how brave it is. She's a student in school. She wanted to write, so she took a playwriting course. Beth was becoming impassioned. But she is the only playwriting student. Think of that. Wanting to do something so badly, you're willing to be the only one, the only one in class, the only one to write a play, and to be a woman. There was a time when they didn't let a woman own pencils. And I said, yeah, yeah, but that was a long time ago. Women own pencils now. They own all sorts of things. It's a whole new world. Women can be cowboys. Men can be strippers. Things have changed. I still had no idea where this conversation was going. Beth looked out of our window onto Green Street. If Claudia can do it, I can do it. I want to be a writer. Without the orchestra in the background, I was unaware of what movie I was in right now. Beth was making a declaration of life while I was wondering if it was too late to watch the 11 p.m. episode of Ironsides. I said casually, I think that'd be great. Am I Blue is great. By all means, you should be a writer if you want. Indian summer is a strange phenomenon. Periods of fall are interspersed with periods of warm spring-like weather all the way up into winter hits like a ton of bricks. And it was the beginning of December, and we had a short, unexpected warm day. At breakfast, I was hit with a certain sensation, and it wasn't good. The smell of ginkgo trees had long since passed, but now there was a new smell. It was the smell of rot and decay. I checked the refrigerator. No. The rat trap behind the couch. No. The bathroom. No. Nothing. Beth woke up and shuffled into the breakfast nook. She looked around and made a face. I went, I know, I know. It stinks. Without missing a beat, Beth said, It's probably Laura. Laura? Wow. I hadn't thought about Laura or her look across the table for months. In fact, I hadn't seen Laura since she watched us walk down the hall after dinner at the beginning of the year. 
I said, Beth, have you seen Laura? Beth thought for a second. No, she's probably a murderer and killed her boyfriend, and he's rotting in her bathtub. We both sipped coffee. I said, seriously, have you seen her? No, not since we had dinner over there. I said, neither have I. Beth took another sip of coffee. I'm telling you, she's a murderer and there's a body in her bathtub. It explains the smell. I started getting my Beth headache. Over the next couple of days, with the warmer weather, the smell got worse. Lying in bed, I asked Beth if I should go over there, and Beth told me not to. She said I didn't want to see what was in that room. The weather turned cold all of a sudden. Winter had arrived, but the smell didn't abate. Now the thought of Laura and that apartment had become a fixation. I had to go over there and see if Laura was still there. Maybe she smelled the rotting mess too. I thought of a ruse to cover my investigation. I bought a bottle of wine. I could knock on the door, offer her the wine as a much belated thank you for the dinner party, have a quick look at the apartment, and if it seemed appropriate, mention the smell of decay, and then leave. I walked down the hallway with my bottle of Lancers. I knocked on the door. Nothing. A couple hours later, I wandered down again, knocked on the door. Nothing. I had a new sense of dread. That look Laura gave me, the talk of what a cute couple Beth and I were, the mention of her boyfriend and how he never find the time to visit her and the stress of being an Asian language major. What if she killed herself? What if she was dead in the tub? I ran back to our apartment. I told Beth my theory. Beth did not look up from her notebook. She just muttered, not the type. She's a murderer. I had trouble sleeping that night. As I lay awake, running the possible equations of time, smell, and disappearance, the physics of all of it was not very hopeful. I heard a noise on the floorboard outside of our bedroom door. I got out of bed. I turned the knob slowly. Silently, I opened the door a crack. It was a stray yellow cat. The cat looked back up at me, then wandered down to Laura's door and meowed. Then it turned around and sprayed pee all over the bottom of the door and wandered back down the hallway, back down the stairs. I had no idea what this meant in the cat world, but I was pretty sure it was bad. I left our bedroom and crept open to Laura's. Thought I heard the faint sound of a radio coming from inside. I knocked quietly. So if she was asleep, she wouldn't have heard it. But if she was awake, I could tell her about the cat and the pee and give her the bottle of Lancers. But she never came to the door, and the sound of the radio suddenly stopped. I told Beth about the cat and the radio. I decided I would have to call the landlord the next day. He would have to come by with the pass key and deal with whatever was behind the door. Next morning, I got up early, headed across the hall to make some coffee. I loaded up the pot, headed back over to the bedroom to get dressed, and as I crossed back over, I noticed something that made my heart miss a beat. Laura's door was open a crack. I stopped and stared. There was no one around, just the sound of the early winter wind cutting through the trees. I had to look. I crept down the hallway. The floorboards were creaking under my weight. I got to Laura's door and tried to look inside. There was no movement or sound anywhere. I pushed the door open with my finger, no more than an inch, 
And then I couldn't believe what I saw. Through the open door, I could see into Laura's apartment and her kitchen table. And there on the table were the remains of our dinner. Untouched, the three place settings and our dishes with the uneaten spaghetti all covered with mold. The Italian salad, the partially eaten garlic bread, the bottle of wine exactly where we had left it months earlier. The mold on the remains of the sponge cake was dripping onto the floor, and there was no trace of Laura. I ran back. I woke up Beth. I told her about what I saw. It was probably her boyfriend who came that same night we had dinner. He killed Laura. He drove her body back to Illinois Southern in his pickup truck. Beth shook her head no. It was probably someone from the language department, insane with jealousy, but we would never find her body. Okay, okay, now we would have to go to the police. Beth got up, got dressed. We ran down the staircase out to the front, and we ran into Laura. Apparently nothing had happened to her at all. She was just used to living in decay. In fact, Laura was still in her plaid skirt and blue sweater. She said, hey, guys, haven't seen you forever. What are you doing up so early? Uh, Nothing, Laura. Uh, Rehearsal for a scene, you know, before class starts. What are you up to? Uh, Just a busy day. My parents are coming in to see me today, so I'm just cleaning up a little. I said, well, that's nice. Have a good visit. Maybe we'll see you later. That afternoon... I ran into Laura's parents coming out of her apartment. The smell was gone. Every trace of our dinner was gone. The dishes were washed. The floor was scrubbed. The bed was neatly made. No one would have ever known what was really there a few hours before. What I saw on Laura's table through that crack in the door was worse than a body in the bathtub. It was the difference between illusion and reality, between safety and danger. Mixed gently with a powder blue sweater, and magically you create the impossibility of the human eye from discerning between the two. I was relieved that no harm had befallen Laura. But now I had a constant dread of what lay beyond that door at the end of the hallway. I had never been so uncertain of the world around me. Lying in bed that night... Each sound posed a question. Was it a warning? Was it the wind? Or was it just the ghost of Green Street looking for her three children? I don't even know where we are. But they will tell us that we'll serve. Well, I'll take their word I don't know But I am dizzy So maybe it's so That was The Uncertainty Principle, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, how can people get in touch with you this week? Well, the way they get in touch with me is either emailing me, and I've gotten some amazing emails this, this last week, i got to tell you, at uh, stephentobolowsky at gmail.com, and I'll spell that name, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. 
T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L, O, W, S, K, Y. And also I'm at Twitter at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Excellent. And also I want to say uh, last week we started a, a new site called the Tobolowsky Testimonies. You can find that at tobolowsky.tumblr.com. Dot com. That's tobolowski.tumblr.com, where you can read other people's emails about how they've been changed and moved and angered and disturbed and overjoyed by the Tobolowski files. Uh, anything you send in we might use there. We'll always remove any personal information, but check that site out if you have a chance. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. You can also find my other podcast at slashfilmcast.com and you can find me at slashfilm.com on a weekly basis. Stephen, you want to also tell people about the movie that inspired this podcast. Right, right. In fact, boy, that's psychic that you bring this up because I got several emails this week about Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party from people around the world wanting to know how to order it and afraid that it wouldn't be coded. Apparently, DVDs are coded according to what country you live in. Yep. And if, if you order from stbpmovie.com, we can easily give you the movie absolutely no problem with the coding for your country anywhere in the world. Excellent. So stbpmovie.com. If you like the Tobolowsky files, you'll probably enjoy Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party. So, guys, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Again, you can email Stephen at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And tune in next week for another story from Stephen's life. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> so I'm Do